Welcome to the Next Level Brands Podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us here on the Next Level Brands Podcast. We're brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands and providers of online and in-person courses, workshops, and webinars for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. Have you ever considered working with a coach in your business, someone with years of experience in consumer goods and retail sales and marketing, an advisor who knows what's coming next? There are limited opportunities now available at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two shelf.com, what you need to know to grow. Hi, this is Steve Clear, and today joining me on the Next Level Podcast is Adam Spriggs. Adam is a partner at Nucleus Maximus, a boutique branding agency that helps CPG companies position and package their products to win attention and sales at shelf. In 2019, Adam also helped found the Angel Group, a growing network of industry execs and consultants who invest in early stage CPG brands. Adam's work and perspectives about the industry have been covered by notable trade groups, including New Hope, Nosh, BevNet, and others. He has had a previous agency life as a consultant to the Sterling Rice Group, and we apparently did not work for the same client at the same time somewhere back in our distant past, but we both liked the creative that came out of it. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hey, it's great to be here. I feel like I've, I've arrived to a degree. Kitchen to show. Uh, <laughs> fan of the program and uh, yeah, thrilled to be here with you. Well, well, thank you. I, I, it, was, it was really interesting to go back and, and when, I, when, I, when I take a look at kind of what people have done and where they've come from. Um, you and I have been in the agency biz for a while, um, and it's a little bit different in the fact that, um, you know, first of all, founding your own agency, that's number one, so you can talk as an entrepreneur, but then also mm -hmm. working with fellow entrepreneurs, which at least when I made my jump was huge because my clients were large CPG, and so, you know, to jump over to working with some guy who's, you've know, got a new soup or something out there was totally different. What was, how, how did you get to the point of going, you know what, I'm going to start and I'm going to start working with emerging brands? Well, you, it was what you had just described, right? Being an entrepreneur, running a creative agency, and then working with early stage entrepreneurs, you, you, it sounds like you're describing a, a scenario where everybody's just enthralled in chaos. And um, in, in some ways, that's true. Uh, but I think that's where a lot of the excitement comes from. And it's just this kind of probably weird addiction uh, that I've developed or, or dependency on that type of action that I've developed. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, I think the the decision to kind of, you know, to strike out on my own a long time ago just came from um, probably a feeling of wanting control, you know, uh, mm -hmm. to a degree. Uh, you know, I think at heart, you know, most creatives, you know, are, are constantly kind of testing in the back of their minds a vision, you know, for a brand, for an outcome, uh, for what will shake out in the market and, you know, what we can create to respond to that. And, you know, same thing with, you know, how we operate, you know, as agencies, you know, there's, there's a lot of different methodologies out there about, you know, how you go out and you attract clients, how you want to funnel them through uh, creative processes, you know, the standards for the, for the work that you want to do. And I think I had just 
you know, over time, it learned through each stop that I had went through different ways uh, for working with clients through creative problem solving. And, you know, uh, Nucleus Maximus is just, you know, the, the outcome of, of all of those learnings, really. If, yeah, and interesting you mentioned that because, I mean, if, if you know, looking back to, to my career, I started out on the creative side and then went over to the dark side, so it became a suit. <laughs> you know? um, mm. But then, you know, as soon as I was launching my own agency again, I was, that's one of the things I was able to do is to get back further into that creative process. And I think that's part of the excitement that working with emerging brands and fellow entrepreneurs really gives you that if you're working for, you know, somebody like you know, my, my good friends at Nestle, who I worked for for years, it's like, oh, if we can move this thing a half a percentage point, we're all going to get bonuses. It's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. So, okay. You know, or we have a, we have a 36% share of the market. We'd like that to be 37. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, actually, it actually goes back to actually the, just exactly what you described there. It's crazy. Uh, my, my very first mentor in coming into CPG and the agency business, Mark Mitchell, he would describe th that almost exact same scenario about that kind of corporate big co mentality. Um, and, and, and that how that just did not sync or vibe with his point of view of the world and, you know, the ambition that, that we really wanted to, you know, see in our staff at the agency, but also in our clients. And, it, you know, it's, there's a kind of a, a cause effect, um, between client and agency. And we really wanted to, we wanted to embrace risk. You know, we wanted to embrace, you know, upside, you know, 200% year over year sales growth. That's what we were aiming for. And so I think that naturally steered us toward, you know, I guess my career and toward always working with uh, brands who would you kind of fit that, that MO. So Adam, so Sterling Rice, pretty good size, even though it worked with yeah. a lot of different brand sizes. What was you know, what was that tipping point that made you say, hey, I have to do this on my own? Well, you know, so Sterling Rice, after what I just described, is probably the one exception to, to, to that rule of, uh, that I've kind of followed for my career. And I think it was a really welcome change of pace. So, um, you know, renowned amongst, you know, Fortune 500 CPGs for product innovation and development and which was a world that I had really not had a lot of experience in, uh, mostly coming from, you know, a brand development, product positioning, package design uh, disciplines, uh, had not done a lot in working with big companies and, you know, learning how they kind of qualify opportunity spaces to launch products into. So, Right. complete change of pace, um, really focused on, you know, uh, consumer insights, uh, you know, analytical assessments of quantitative data, focus groups, um, prototypes, um, you know, test and learn approach, you know, nine months, you know, to take something from concept to market, if not longer. Yep. But it, it, it taught me a lot about, you know, 
when we're, we're working with early stage brands, now we're really focused on, you know, the next Whole Foods region and, you know, maybe a thousand store trial and a, and a target, you know, but ultimately, you know, the path that, that, that you should be considering in the back of your mind for, for many of these brands and these founders is, you know, broad mass mainstream appeal. And so when you can incorporate uh, some of the thinking and the perspective that Big Co kind of goes at product innovation at into early stage brands, I think it can really affect the trajectory that you set them out on. Yeah, there's there's an essence of, um, I think once a company gets to a certain size and a brand gets to a certain size, obviously some conservatism sets in. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember working with, with folks where you'd come up with some focus group stuff and you'd say, hey, you know, there's an opening here in the market and this is the category and where it is. And the guy would say, well, can we make it in the factory out here right now? Well, no, no, you'd have to oh, forget it. <laughs> I'm not right. Yeah. We're not, we're not changing the factory around to do this new product launch. If we can make it in the factory, it's great. So let's do another flavor, whatever. And you, and you get that kind of, kind of response, but from entrepreneurs, you get exactly the opposite, which is the, to me is, you know, it's the shiny object syndrome kind of like, okay, I've, I've launched, I've got three flavors and now I want to do, I want to do a set of, of, uh, of, of sauces. What? Yeah. Sauces. Well, yeah, it tastes really good. Yeah, yeah, I got that. But let's yeah. talk about how does this fit into your to your end game or growing growing your brand. Um, when you're yeah. meeting you're meeting with someone, Adam, where do you usually um, are you usually starting with people who are like uh, maybe regional or are they still in farmers market? Is what does the brand or product look like when you you know optimally start working with them? So, I would say about. Historically, half of our clients have uh, come to us before they even have their product out in the market, and so you know they don't they don't have a name trademark trademarked, uh, you know, let alone having uh, a finished you know packaged product that's out there on shelves. Yep. So we'll take brands from you know the very beginning with with naming identity development, product positioning, package design, you know, primary communications, um, you know, into, you know, to getting them into their, their first accounts, essentially. Um, and then another half of our clients are, um, you know, already in market, but, you know, have probably worked with, you know, some, um, you know, freelancer to kind of, get their product into market, uh, get some learnings, and then they come to us, you know, when they're really ready to um, maximize what they can do based off of what they've learned out in the market. Um, and so we'll get to reskin them and really get them ready for prime time to, you know, drive awareness and velocities at shelf. Right. Yeah, and 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 that's a, a different type of a different type of outlook, a different type of approach, um, especially if maybe your 
the clients that are in early stage are not necessarily clear on the personas for their target audience, or maybe mm-hmm. their, you know, their cost of goods doesn't look quite the way it should yet. And you're going through all that. It, it's, it's a huge, I, I say a huge leap of faith for most of them. Um, and certainly as, as an agency, you know, working with, with folks like that, you know, it's a, a different, a different thing as well. How do you structure yeah. working with, with, I mean, most of the founders, I'm, I'm, you're still probably working with the founders. Um, how do you structure that in terms of, of working with them on creative and packaging? And is it, is it tough for them to kind of give up their baby a little bit to an agency? You know, most of our, we've been very fortunate that, you know, we've established over 15 years, you know, 95% of what I've done is, branding and and packaging work in CPG. So, you know, with that in developing, you know, um, relationships and referrals and a network and, you know, you get this, this reputation eventually that, that builds so that when folks come to us, I think they're, they're ready to hand over the keys to the car um, and to, uh, to learn alongside of us, we don't pretend that you know we're coming in from day one with all the answers, but we're gonna we're gonna go through um, the you know simulating the experience of the shopper in the store in the category together, and that's where we're gonna learn. In, that's where we're gonna glean insights from um, from from that point of view, and so you know when you put it that way, you know that this is a learning experience. This is a collaborative learning experience. And, um, you know, I think it really disarms founders and it really gets them excited that they have somebody um, by their side to help them interpret and translate what's there and see things that they didn't see before. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's important because it's, um, it's a mainstay of getting the brand out there and getting, getting sales and stuff. What, what I have always enjoyed about working in retail is, is that you, you figure out pretty quick um, whether or not you've, you know, hit a home run or a single or, you know, there's, there's not a lot of nebulous counting out there. It's like pretty easy to see is how many, you know, how many units did we move? And, uh, and, and today, you know, like this morning we're talking about, Amazon, where, you know, now literally can go in and do content changes in Amazon and I can wait 48 hours and go back in and look and see what happened. And that's amazing. Yeah. That's, you know, we're not, we're not waiting for some IRI report or whatever to come out where, you know, we're actually able to, to affect this stuff almost, if you will, in, in, in real time. Um, yeah. let, me, let me ask you, Adam, one of the things, because this is a, a, a thing that I skipped because I, I kind of, I went from the agency business to the consulting business. Um, and you know, but how do you structure with a growing company or whatever? How do you structure like agency compensations? You you can't do it off of 15% of media anymore. So how do you do it? Well, you know, for us, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty clear where we, we have a, a package that, uh, we offer that's almost, you know, universal universally consistent from client to client. So a package of deliverables that, you know, typically is going to include uh, logo work. uh, Well, it's going to, it's going to begin with uh, positioning and strategy work, logo work, 
package redesign. These are the mediums that we're most commonly working on. Right. And so we don't focus on a, you know, an hourly rate type of scale where, you know, we're, we're counting hours and reporting back to the client. We look at it as, you know, a, a, a packaged value that we're delivering to the client. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we like to think that CPG brands come to us to tap into their true potential. Um, and so, you know, we like to, to charge accordingly for that. So, you know, most of our clients, our package is a flat rate of, you know, 40 to $50,000 for depending on the number of SKUs that we're developing um, in the packaging work. Um, so we found a market for that and that's where we've been comfortable and we like the types of brands that come in, um, you know, with that budget in mind. A lot of times we're working with, with clients who've been, you know, recently funded. Uh, right. So that's kind of been our, that's kind of been our sweet spot. And, you know, I've, I've also learned in working through with clients over the years that, you know, I want to work with people who are really passionate in what they deliver. And so, you know, our passion really kind of begins and ends with that strategy work that then manifests into that creative outcome, you know, something that's ready to, you know, the, the most visible medium a brand has and packaging, you know, is kind of where all that work, that strategy work gets condensed into. And then, you know, typically we're helping funnel our clients from there to other specialists, whether it be, you know, digital marketing specialists, website specialists, trade marketing groups, PR. We don't do a lot of that stuff in-house. We've just built out a network. So we really kind of have a nice, clean life cycle for where our hands-on work is going to occur. And then we, we you know, being a client of ours, we, we really try to, you know, remain in close contact with our clients to support their efforts moving forward as they have other needs beyond our scope. Do you... Adam, look at, um, so assuming that a number of these folks are obviously regional and or even local when they start out, of having to take into account regionality or geographic, uh, you know, with most of the emerging brands, we're kind of, we're kind of coastal, right? I mean, it's, um, they're either starting on the East Coast and moving West or, you know, and you get some stuff in Chicago and Kansas City and Atlanta and whatever. But, but for the most part, at least the, the visible, more visible parts of the uh, of Boulder, I should say, of course, in, in Denver. But, um, you know, the more visible parts are pretty geographically spread out. Do you find that what plays in, in New York will play in L.A. or is that our target audience that's all kind of all the same, no matter which coast they're on? Yeah. Well, I think more and more, we're, I mean, if you, if you look at it from the standpoint of, you know, where you're going to launch your products, I think that's an incredibly important consideration, you know, um, I think mainly just from an expense and an operational standpoint of being able to, to manage, uh, you know, your distribution chain, um, to be able to properly manage uh, retail relationships and getting in for demo and merchandising from that standpoint, I think it's a really important consideration, but in terms of appeal, uh, to consumers, um, and kind of purchase motives, uh, you know, from, from one, uh, region of the country to another, certainly there's variances, but, you know, by and large, I think you can see, 
you know, a lot of similarities between what you'd find in one category in LA, uh, you know, let's say just the refrigerated functional beverage cooler and, and what you'll find at, uh, you know, uh, the same, you know, type of store out in New York. So I think the speed in which these product trends are, are traveling across the country and even between the coasts is happening a lot faster. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the, the willingness of retailers, um, you know, to, to kind of study each other and to learn from each other and to adapt their sets accordingly, you know, in real time. It happens a lot faster than it used to. Yeah. And you have to be prepared for that. You know, Adam, in terms of, of packaging, uh, because I, I'm not a pretend to have any knowledge whatsoever of package design other than I've worked with some really great people over the years. But um, so much of packaging is, uh, I, I use the phrase handicapped, and that's probably not fair. But in, in, in our courses and stuff, we talk to people about, you know, don't forget with your packaging, about 75% of your space is kind of already dictated mm-hmm. by regulation. Right, you 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 have to have you know, you have to have your nutritionals. You have to have an ingredient statement. You have to have a corporate headquarters. You have to have a logo. And pretty much the rest of the space, uh, figure out what kind of a challenge is that to deal with uh, today with you know even ongoing um, changes to packaging regulation. Well, you know from from a real estate standpoint on on a package, whether it be a label or um, a box or a gusseted bag you know, there's, it depends, you know, so we, we've worked on core shots, you know, well-known cold press juice shot brand out of Malibu. Yep. Um, and these are, we're talking about 1.7 fluid ounce bottles, you know, <laughs> with a tiny zipper label on them. And so these are very, very, you know, critical decisions about what we do with space. And you're right. We have to have a statement of identity. Uh, we've got, you know, the net weight, we've got, you know, size requirements around USDA organic symbol, uh, you, you know, the supplement facts panel, UPC code. So in, in that type of application, you know, there are, there are very, very limited liberties that you can take, you know, with all the ideas that might come rushing forward. And you've really got to focus on scaling a label like that, you know, to punch way above its weight class. Um, and then when you go and you work on, you know, a larger canvas, uh, you know, like a, a cereal box or a cookie box, you know, you've got, you've got a lot more space to play with, but the, the whole name of the game is, you know, you got to work within, you know, what's got to be on the package. And, um, I think most fundamentally, you know, we've got an opportunity to leverage this pervasive and powerful discovery medium and, you know, it's the one thing that's present in the moment that a shopper chooses to put a product in their cart. Yep. And so the, the first job is to create contrast in the environment that it's sold within, you know, to jump out and win attention. And so when you, when you really break it down incrementally from, from the sales or from the shopper's perspective, it's got to start there. The genesis, the genesis of every sale is to be seen. And then it's got a whole nother job to do. It's, it's got to perform as a sales tool right? With a finely tuned and condensed narrative of, of your brand and your product proposition. That you can hold in your hand. Yeah. 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 
it, going going forward from that, Adam. I mean, in, in and again, going going back to to big CPG. You know, you get ready to launch a new product, and you you book your TV advertising, maybe some co op radio. Uh, you got your Sunday FSI coupon, and it was pretty standard standard fare, which obviously doesn't work if we're going into maybe only two or three chains, or maybe even launching in one chain on a regional basis and stuff. Do you do you utilize any of the retailers? tools, digital tools and advertising stuff now more than maybe, you know, a few years ago? Well, we don't, we don't do a lot of ad placement for our clients, uh, but that whole world absolutely has changed. I mean, I haven't thought about when you mentioned FSI, I haven't thought about FSI <laughs> until I probably first started um, in the, in the business. Um, we used to do a ton of them, you know, and I'm actually starting to, to, to conjure up images of what some of those look like and, you know, the fine print <laughs> yes. and the little tear off. And um, that was a big part of our work with, um, uh, with some of the big, our bigger clients that we had worked with um, when I first got started. But, you know, nowadays, you know, it's we're you know, most brands we're talking with are really focused on, you know, we're trying to figure out how we deliver them out of our strategy, our strategy and packaging work, really condensed, bite-sized headlines and branded communication that's going to work on, you know, a on, on a small cell phone screen, you know, through an Instagram feed or a Facebook yep. feed, um, and so that's where that's where what we're the lens that we're trying to develop all of our, our branded language uh, through because ultimately it's, it's going to make its way into, you know, an image that is, that is scrolled, scrolled down on, on a cell phone. Yep. And quickly. so that's really where we, where we see most of our clients uh, focusing their attention. And then the rest of it, you know, with very limited budgets, they've of course have to allocate to our trade spend um, and exactly. supporting their presence and retailers. Yep. How, how do you differentiate or do you differentiate message and imagery from direct to consumer to going through retail or is there a difference? You know, I, I think the attention spans between both are equally finite, <laughs> you know, um, with, and, and so, you know, you, you think about how many emails you get in your inbox when people talk about email marketing oh, yeah. versus the amount that you open versus the amount you remember. And then you think about if we reflect on our own behavior of how we just flick our thumb on our phones through our Instagram feed on how quickly we move through all of that content. I don't think it's much different than how we experience a store environment, especially now that we're in COVID and everything's like a track meet to get through the store. Uh, but even prior to that, we have we have tunnel vision when we go into the store. You think about how much information and visual noise our brains are trained to reject. <laughs> yes. And we have to keep that healthy perspective in our minds when we're kind of evaluating what we're asking the consumer to pay attention to. So whether it be an in-store display or a, um, you know, a digital ad, or a video that starts playing as soon as I'm scrolling down to my Instagram feed, our starting point for any of that stuff is, is this going to earn attention from somebody who is hardwired to ignore everything that they see? 
You know, it, it's funny because I, I have um, I have a client and I apologize in advance to him, but one of the things he loves to do is to call up and go, you know, look at look at my Amazon page. And he's going, and here's these right competitors, right? There's like six competitors on the row below or whatever. And he's going to be like, what, what are they doing there? And he knows why they're there and then they got there, whatever. And at some point it's like, you know, if, if, if this is really going to bother you to see competitors next to your product in your Amazon page, wait until you get into Albertsons. Because <laughs> because there's there's a whole section that everybody can see the entire thing. This way, you you, you know you got six different. And there's probably two or three different flavors there. There might be, might be two different competitors, a couple of different price points. But the truth of the matter is, you're not sitting in a category like barbecue sauce that goes for eight feet in some stores, and everybody yeah. from you know Casey Masterpiece down on the bottom at four bucks a gallon to you know the top shelf guy is your competitor. So it's kind of, you know, you get sorted out in that, I think in that, in that way somehow. And you really have with DTC, uh, you know, you really have a chance to not only establish a, a better relationship with your, with your customer, with your consumer, but you can really dominate the, you know, if the search is done right, you can really dominate that whole buying experience that you will never be able to replicate even with an end dial at, at retail. It's just too, there's too much going yeah. on. As you said, there's just too much craziness. Um, you know, end dials were always for big CPG displays and end dials were up. That was everything, right? You wanted, you, you had to get those, had to get those displays. You had to get shippers in. And then as stores began clean store policies, um, mm -hmm. that kind of went away as an effective, although in a lot of places you still can do them, but many places, you know, oh, yeah. you can't. So yeah. you have to kind of look for that. How do how do you work with, um, how do you work with getting basically, I guess, a, um, when, in, in the strategy portion, at least, when you're trying to figure out, do you develop the personas, the consumer personas and stuff to, for those, that product, who it's going after? And, and, and how, do you go through, how do you go through that process? Yeah, it's a really important piece of the puzzle. I mean, it's the essential context that we need to root and aim the vision for the brand, you know, within. So, you know, everything starts with, you know, we're, we're aiming at a specific market opportunity, you know, so for our strategy work, it's a deep dive into the category, into the consumer, into the culture around the food or the beverage, you know, and so we have to find a, a harmony across all of those and, and put that into a, a singular, you know, piece of positioning or a roadmap. And so, you know, in, in, especially with the consumer, you know, we're, we need to create this, this vision of who's going to buy, but we also need to talk a little bit about, you know, what are these specific customer groups? How do they think, feel, and act? You know, what are the preconceived notions and ideas that they bring into the category? What are the purchase motives? Um, and identify that, that, that tension, that unmet need uh, that we want to help them with. And so that's what's really going to inform a lot of the baseline strategy. Um, and where we see misalignment a lot of times is with founders when they come to us is that, you know, if, if, you, if you almost took uh, an assessment of the, the description of the target consumer for every brand we've talked with over the past 10 years, 
they're, they're all describing the same consumer, right? They're <laughs> in a yoga class, they're mountain biking, they shop at Whole Foods. You she know. has two kids. Um, yeah. 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 Need healthy foods on the go. So you know, that's, that's just not going to, uh, to cut it. So what we're really looking for is, is finer than that. Where are we going to experience the quickest and broadest adoption for your products? And you don't, you know, have to come in with a suite of research and, you know, analytical data to get there. We just have to, you know, we have to be, I think, really reflective on ourselves as consumers. We have to, you know, um, embrace feedback from other folks who have worked in these categories before. Um, there's a lot of ways we can kind of shoestring it to get to really clear, identifiable, identifiable consumer groups to, to work out of. Exactly. And, uh, and b before we get too far, um, Adam, if folks want to get some more information about Nucleus Maximus, how do they find you? Yeah, uh, the, best uh, the best spot is just to look us up uh, on the Google, NucleusMaximus.com. Uh, uh, otherwise, you can uh, check us out on Instagram as well. Uh, the handle is at NucleusMaximus. And yeah, follow along. We like to... Uh, we like to share our work there. And then we've also got a number of our kind of uh, programming, our educational programming and seminars we've done over the years through with, with groups like BevNet and NOSH and uh, New Hope. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that'd be a good, good resource for folks. So by all means, um, visit Nucleus Maximus. Um, Adam, let me ask you um, a little bit about the Angel Group. And um, one of the things that, well, first of all, Let's talk about angels. So when the brands that are starting out or whatever, generally you're, you're uh, if you're not totally bootstrapping what you're doing, uh, your first reach out is what we used to call the three Fs, which is uh, friends, family, and fools um, to get some money to get started. And then the next level before you get to the alphabetical chain is, is normally angels. Um, first, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about the group. And then so that for some people out there may not be quite there yet, how do angels work and why? Yeah, sure thing. So, uh, the uh, I can maybe I'll start with you know why angels exist, you know, and and and, and start with your second question. So, sure. especially for early stage brands in this space, we're we're, we're continuing to see, uh, you know, VC funds um, and and other investors further down the road, uh, uh, family offices, private equity. Uh, kind of pull back on how far they were reaching down um, into with early stage brands in in um, uh, putting money into those ventures, and so there is a, a funding gap uh, between uh, the friends and family around and institutional capital that just continues to widen, right. and so the, the the industry needs uh, more angels. Uh, who, you know, are more familiar with the kind of high risk, high reward uh, stakes that, that come uh, with brands who are just getting started. And so, you know, that's, that's really the, the, the role of, of, of angels in the lifespan of a, of a brand in terms of just with, with the money that they're going to need to raise uh, over their life cycle. Uh, and so a lot of the, the reason that the angel group was formed was to it was to contribute to that effort uh so 
the angel group is just a, it's a collection of really, it's a collection of friends, uh, my friends in the industry, um, who I've either worked alongside of, or just, you know, bullshitted with, you know, through calls, um, and, you know, through, uh, you know, just developed industry relationships over the years. And these are folks who, you know, work at, you know, early stage brands, a, a Justin's, uh, a Capello's, um, and Ohi, yep. uh, Alpha Foods. And so these are CEOs, uh, VPs of sales, uh, uh, chief operating officers that, you know, can really bring a lot of different uh, disciplinary perspective to the table. Um, and yeah, so we've got uh, a number of folks from the industry, uh, folks who cover the industry. And then we've also been bringing in some more seasoned investors who want to get more experience uh, investing in CPG brands. And uh, yeah, what we do is we, uh, we bring brands through to meet our, our members through these virtual pitch nights that we host uh, about every uh, 30 days. We'll bring in a couple of brands and we'll host them. Um, and we don't do a lot of pitching. It's really, really focused on, you know, quality time and getting to know the founder, working through some organic Q&A um, so that our members can get a good feeling for you know, where the company's uh, headed. And from there, you know, we each kind of work, on, work through our diligence uh, follow-up as a collective and then we make our own individual investment decisions as, in terms of how we'd like to move forward with the brands and, and writing checks. And, and how do you source the folks to pitch? Is that just from everybody's kind of individual knowledge of what's going on or is there a formal process? Yeah, it, it's, it's mostly organic. We, we've, we've kind of intentionally kept a little bit of a low profile just because while we don't, you know, we don't mind inbound inquiries, you know, we really value referrals, uh, right. you know, with, yep. you know, through our relationships with VC, VCs who may be talking with brands who are just not quite ready uh, for their attention. Um, or, you know, just from us, you know, being on the ground level, we discover brands that, you know, we, we kind of strike an early excitement around. And so, you know, most of it is, most of our deal flow is harvested within. And, um, but we do have a bit of a screening process where we ask, um, where we ask entrepreneurs to gain a sponsor. So we've got 30 members and we've got six of our members uh, we've, we've um, uh, elected as sponsoring members. So brands will need to connect with them and spend some quality time on the phone with them, uh, you know, introducing them to their business, um, you know, talking about traction, talking about unit economics, just getting a kind of a ground level exposure. And if they can gain an invite to then present to our group, then, you know, that's where everything starts. Wow. That sounds like a fun, a fun process going through that. Are you, uh, when, when you, when, in looking at that, I, I think it's, it's one of the things that, you know, I, I've found at least with the folks I've worked with or, and, and then in the, in the stories that I've also heard from a lot of people on the show that that gap is a can be a chasm. I mean, it can be a really wide gap, uh, particularly if it's in an area where it's not an established category or there isn't something you can fall back on to easily look at the metrics that you you need to have. So I think that's really a great a great service that you guys are providing to do that because practically everybody I know is is looking for funding uh, in some form or another. Yeah. 
but uh, but there is that the beginning where it's like, well, how do I get somebody interested in writing a check to venture capital where it's, well, if you don't have the metrics all sorted out, you're probably not going to get any attention at all. So, yeah. And the approach that brands have taken has changed dramatically. I mean, it was, you know, very, very common to see brands who would raise a hundred, you know, thousand dollars, you know, sometimes $50,000 and be able to get a product to market and get some proof of concept, you know, that, that, that there is, you know, appeal here, that there's, that there's movement at shelves and that they have something that just needs some, some support right. uh, from an angel on. And, and most of the brands we're talking with now are trying to raise, you know, 250,000, 500,000, a million and a half dollars, and they don't have a product sitting on shelf yet. So they're, they're just punting the risk you know, to the angels, whereas if they, you know, could, could find a way to get the product shipped, delivered on shelf, move some product, you know, um, much earlier on, you can increase the interest and leverage that they have with investors, uh, with, with angel investors tenfold. Yeah. And, and one of the things, again, going back to the, the sort of the e-commerce revolution has been, you now can legitimately launch something in e-com and get a sense of what it's going to do in retail, you know, yeah. and, and you can bring that to, and, and you know, I, I know a lot of retailers who say, well, we really don't pay any attention to, you know, what's on Amazon and you know, yeah, yeah, they do. And um, if you're a category manager at Kroger or whatever, you know, darn well what the number one and two products are on Amazon in that category <laughs> and their prices, yeah. by the way, you know, so there's that aspect, but, but it does make for something, um, you know, a, a place to get validity and a place to test a number of things without having to sink in a couple of hundred grand to do like a regional launch or pay 25,000 in slotting fees and, you know, whatever else to get, to get a product on shelf, because that's still out there in a lot of places too. And so I think it's, it's at least, it's not easier, I don't think for brands today, but there certainly is a lot more of an outlet to the consumer than there was, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, you're right. And it, it, and it comes with a bit of a double-edged sword, right? So if the barriers to entry are, are lessened or, or lower, yes. uh, we just see more products coming to market. You know, it's, we, we joke all the time about just that it's, it's too easy to, to start a beverage brand these days. I mean, most of the brands that you know, come inbound to us are, you know, got some new novel innovation in a 12-ounce in a sleek can, and they, uh, you know, are very optimistic about where they're going to take this. And, you know, it's just, you, you get a formula, uh, you, you piece a couple of trends together, uh, a couple data points together, and you think about a product you want to take to market, you find a formulator, you get a co-packer, sometimes they're under the same roof, and there you go. You've got a product that you can ship to people and say, hey, that, you know, I'm thinking about launching this. Will you help, you know, fund my venture? Uh, but yep. it's, it is, it has always been a very busy and noisy landscape. And I like to think that the, the founders who are really intentional about bringing on folks who can shape their, their ideas and how they're going to come at the market and whether they should or not, even in the first place, right. very early on being open to advice from experienced advisors. These are, I would qualify experienced as people who are really uh, enamored with and affiliated with 
you know, the ground level, early stage CPG landscape, who can give them a blunt assessment of what they have, um, I think that can make all the difference in terms of just the, the overall viability of, you know, of their, of their venture and all the risks that they're about to put into it. Yeah, because it's, it's, um, it's not an easy industry. I mean, r- regardless of the fact that, yes, you can do direct-to-consumer pretty easy nowadays and whatever. No, the, the industry is tough. And, you know, um, as we used to joke about the fact that they aren't, they aren't making the stores any bigger, um, the shelves mm-hmm. are still where they are, and it only holds a certain number of products. And uh, if you're refrigerated or frozen, that's even worse. <laughs> right, because it's yeah. even, the landscape is even more determined. And the truth of the matter is, is that when you go in, that meant somebody else is coming out. That's yeah. the only way it happens, or or somebody loses a phasing. However, it works. But the truth matters; it's a zero sum game for the most part, except when people are opening new stores, and that doesn't happen all that often either. So it's um it it's tough, and it's it, it different a different approach to it when you start looking at it that way as, as opposed to, Oh, I got this really great, you know, orange hibiscus uh, and it's no sugar and it's this, that, and the other. It's like, yeah, okay. Well, uh, you know um, that and a lot of people out there that are, you know, in, in most of the categories you're going to be in, there are going to be some heavy players in those categories, whether it's PepsiCo or, you know, Coke or, you know, cereal Kellogg's and post, whatever, you know uh, those people are not going to just let stuff go by lightly. Um, no, usually, no. Uh, usually reaction. You can fly. It, you can fly under the radar. Get your blocking and tackling down. You know, make sure you've got you know the the, the absolute best shelf presence you possibly can. Uh, you know, and, and the same thing applies to online too with packaging. It, it you know, and now in the past five years, we've seen our definition of the customer's interaction with packaging proliferate with the DTC and e-commerce channel, right? The the interaction can be expanded and curated in so many new ways beyond yes. the immediate vessel now and in, in, in a much more intimate environment when, when the customer opens the package and unboxes the delivery, you know, you can never attach a, a branded cap or a, a first trial of a new pro, a, a new prototype that you're developing, you know, to, to the, to the, to a package that would be sold at shelf. So it's an incredible new frontier um, you know, for curating memorable experiences. And it, there's just, with, with all of the, the new opportunities out there, I think if, if brands can just, um, you know, be, continue to think very intentionally about how they're going to maximize those brand experiences at these key touch points, whether it be an analog or a digital touch point, um, they'll, get, they'll give themselves the best shot possible to, to survive. You know, um, one of the things Adam I wanted to to uh, touch on was um, we we usually ask founders, but and and, and you're a founder, but um, of the actual product companies themselves. But since you and I are both sort of on the agency side, it might be a little different. Um, we like to get our guests to reflect back on like one of their biggest career challenges and how they overcame that challenge or an approach that would be good advice for fellow entrepreneurs. And, um, and, and you can choose either one of your own in the agency business or one of your clients. Uh, can you share something with us that fits that bill? Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty simple, really. The biggest challenge is one that just has continued to show up in my life, uh, in my career, is, uh, the, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the feeling of fear in taking leaps. You know, I think 
whether it be the you know the first investment I made, you know, can I really part with with this cash? I could do so many other things with to put it in, you know, um, into this brand. <laughs> oh yeah, that, you know, where there's so many unknowns. Fear of consequence uh, is probably always been the biggest challenge, and it but it, it's always driven me to, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, starting my own agency. Um, taking a leap into, you know, experimenting with some investments, you know, asking for other folks to join me in this adventure of, you know, looking for kind of a more formal approach yep. to getting involved with investing in CPG brands. Uh, there's, there's, but I think I've, I've continuously felt like it's been um, a rewarding um, kind of affliction to have is that, <laughs> that constant state of of fear, and uh, you know you take a couple steps back, you take a couple steps forward, and in the end, you know you're you're you feel like you're moving in a way that is you know something that's ultimately going to net you a better outcome or a better reality than where you were before. You just keep challenging yourself. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun too. <laughs> yeah, it makes it thrilling. You know that yep. that feel, that gut. You know, that, that nervousness in your stomach, if you don't feel that, you know, um, you know, you're probably not pushing yourself far enough. Right. Exactly. Well, hey, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today on the show and sharing some of this knowledge with us. Um, folks, if you're out there and you've got a product or you've got an idea even for a product, whatever, um, you know, I agree, obviously, with with Adam's uh uh, outlook that one of the best ways to ensure success for your for your brand going forward is to enlist the help early on of people with experience mm -hmm. and stuff in the in the business and uh, so nucleus maximus for sure and uh, you can probably get more information from Adam at some point about uh, the angel group as well but uh, Adam thanks for joining us appreciate it absolutely and our, our door is always open uh, to you and to your listeners so uh, thanks again for having me Okay, we'll, we will be talking. And thanks, by the way, to all of you for joining us here today on the Next Level Brands podcast. Our podcast brought to you, as always, by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands and providers of courses, workshop, webinars, group, and one-on-one -on -one coaching for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. If you'd like to know more, check out the details at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com, what you need to know to grow. This is Steve Clear, and we will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.